I've learned more from patients that I can use in how I think about advocating uh, for the betterment of medical practice than I have from friends, colleagues, papers, texts. Hey, welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that, my friends, was Dr. Ian Bett, a voice of conscience in the Columbus medical community and a physician advocate for universal health care. I've wanted to have Ian on the show for a while, so I'm psyched to finally make it happen. Since I launched the show a few years ago, I haven't done much to address the movement sometimes known as single-payer or Medicare for All. This is for a few reasons. The most important, though, is that though listeners know I'm supportive of pretty much all of the aims of the Medicare for All movement, and I find the current state of the American healthcare system unacceptable, I also find the singular focus on this Medicare for All frame a bit odd given the lack of public support for a major overhaul of the system, and especially the lack of legislative support for such changes on either the state or the federal levels. I guess you can say, though, it feels weird to say it, I've become a bit of a political pragmatist in this area, just trying to get some wins where we can in this political climate. There's so many fights to fight, many of which I think can yield shorter-term help for those who need better access to health care. That said, I applaud these groups like the Single Payer Action Network and Universal Healthcare Action Network here in Ohio and Physicians for a National Health Program on the national stage who continue to keep the issue of universal healthcare on the legislative map, even as the prospects for passing it are very far off. In my conversation with Ian, who's a founder of another group called USA Healthcare, we work through some of the nuances of my and his thinking about why we desperately need to make progress and how to do so. We also talk about some of the roadblocks, including the role that physicians' organizations play and the relationship between a focus on the healthcare system as such and the social determinants of health that lead to poor outcomes and disparities in the first place in Ohio and around the nation. As you'll see, Dr. Bett is a thoughtful thinker on these issues who keeps an open mind. Just a reminder to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and consider supporting us through Patreon, all of which you can do at prognosisohio.com. That's also where we're going to be posting extensive show notes for today's episode. Dr. Ian Bett, thanks so much for being on the show. Dr. Skinner, I am excited to be here, so hopefully we're going to have a very vivacious conversation. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before the show, and I was saying that kind of my framing on this is that you and I have a very similar worldview, a sense of justice. We're concerned about many of the same things. We travel in some of the same circles yep. in medical education, things like that. But also, we have had really productive conversations already about some of the areas that we might learn from one another on tactics and what next and trying to figure out how to, how to move forward. So we're friends, so I think we can skip the small talk and kind of just sure. jump right into it. I admit that over almost 130 episodes, we've barely touched on Medicare for all or, mm. or single-payer healthcare debates, at least specifically on this show. We've, of course, talked about most of the pieces, cost, access, quality, workforce mm -hmm. issues. We talk a lot about disparities, inequities in healthcare. But most of the issues we've focused on on this show have been kind of within the deflating and massively corrupt <laughs> context of Ohio politics. Yes which are extremely limiting, to, to put it mildly. Um, so just to start things off, I'll, I'll share that, you know, I often can't muster the spirit to think that it's even worth discussing Medicare for all mm. at a time when we're running defense on so many fronts. Um, let's, let's start with just asking, what gives you the audacity 
to think we can go big or think big at a time when we're just trying to keep things from getting steadily worse. Yeah, that's a very deep and somewhat personal topic. You know, I'm fortunate in 2023 to be a practicing physician here in Ohio, uh, practicing in the United States. But I've also had my own health illnesses over time. And so I try to think when I see people who need my medical expertise about how I felt when I needed medical care. And that's what really pushes me towards the need for Medicare for All or a synonymous national health insurance is the most critical thing that we can be talking about, working on, fighting for uh, in this country. Okay, so so it's the kind of like the urgency of it all. Like we have to have these conversations because the stakes are just too high, even if the politics right now are just not there. Completely. And it's frustrating to me, both as a clinician and as a person who's walking around in real life, that we don't already have a Medicare for All or a national health insurance single-payer system. Uh, but apparently, we need to continue to advocate for this, advocate for ourselves and others. And despite the political climate or the educational climate, it is something that has to happen because we are so far behind most of the rest of the industrialized developed world in not providing this type of access to uh, care that doesn't bankrupt its citizens. So it, it's pertinent in all realms of our existence, I think. So we're, we're going to get into a bunch of the details here. But so let, let me start with a couple of, you know, just to get you to make the case a little bit here. And, uh, you know, I'm being a little bit of devil's advocate, even though actually I believe most of what I'm saying here. I, I recently watched a, a video of you on YouTube in conversation with Greg Moody of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs. We've We had a wonderful conversation with him a few episodes back, looking back on some of his work. Um, the subject of that was, uh, and we'll be linking to this in the show notes, uh, is Medicare for all the answer? And you were kind of in the comfy chair in the position of the affirmative. As listeners of the show know, I'm supportive of all the aims of Medicare for all. And our, you know, our current system is entirely unjust and unacceptable. But I also think the slogan Medicare for all, um, or even healthcare as a right, sometimes gets in the way of clear thinking. I ask students, they'll come in and say, do you think healthcare is a right? And I'm like, what, what do you think that means? And there's not a lot that we can follow up on because the idea of rights, I mean, I'm a political theorist, rights are complicated things and interesting things in their own right. One thing I like a lot about USA Healthcare, an organization that you work with, is that you emphasize how we should, you know, that we need to change how we talk about healthcare. So I'm all in on that aim. Let's work through this <laughs> together. What does Medicare for all mean for you? And what about the sort of language and the way we talk about this issue? That's a great question. And I, for most of my colleagues and friends know, I like to play the devil's advocate as well. So I am completely appreciating having the tables turned on me here. I think the slogan Medicare for all served a great purpose for a long time. Medicare polls well when you ask Americans about, do they believe in it? Is it necessary? I do think things have changed in the last 10 years around that slogan has become so highly politicized as our political spectrum has become more and more polarized. And the idea for me of Medicare for All is 
that there is a national health insurance, something that's available for all citizens, all inhabitants, when they need medical care and how they need it so that they do not have crippling debt or undergo bankruptcy. Or as many of my patients have told me, and I have done personally, avoided healthcare when they needed it for fear of not receiving the care that they need uh, because of the cost. So a little bit of a long-winded response, but I, I think Medicare for All is a useful slogan because everyone's familiar with Medicare. I do think the USA Healthcare Project, which you referenced that I'm one of the founding members of, has a different approach than Medicare for All. We're looking to educate people around social values rather than political constructs and craft uh, legislation in the sense of we USA Healthcare, universal, simple, and affordable. Um, a slight deviation from Medicare for All, but I think an effective strategy moving forward. So you don't really care. I mean, you're you're a physician and you care about this stuff for for the right reasons. You don't really care what we call this thing. I don't. Uh, so. so <laughs> You know, one of the things that strikes me about the kind of, as you use the language and I did as well, the slogan, you know, Medicare for all, like these things that can sometimes, you know, be great rallying cries, but mm -hmm. also kind of get in the way. When you pull this stuff, I mean, one of the things that I've kind of reflected on, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a lot of my stalwart Medicare for all friends kind of were saying, this is it. People are going to see the system and they're going to be so pissed this is it. Like this is the beginning of the end yep. because American healthcare system, you know, I felt that way. And yet the numbers haven't moved at all. You know, I mean, very, very little, you know, th that, that outcome didn't happen. Um, and the prospects on the federal level are even less today than they were then of, of, of passing this kind of thing. Um, but when you actually ask the specific issues and you pointed to a few of them, uh, medical debt, um, pre-existing conditions, they pull well, Right, yep. so the, the substance, the policy substance pulls well, even though the big picture might not. What do you chalk that up to? I mean, you talk to patients all the time, so you get to see that sort of processing. I think, uh, not to get too deep into it, but we're quite far removed from when Medicare was put into place. So there are now multiple generations of Americans who are adults who have never lived in a country that provided a national health insurance or a single-payer healthcare system or Medicare for all. So it is actually a foreign concept to them that something like this is necessary for a functioning society. And when people don't know, quote-unquote, what they're missing, it's hard for them to advocate for it, for them to believe in it. I have had conversations with patients in the office who may have run across something I wrote in the newspaper or uh, heard about some presentation I gave, like the one you referenced, and they will challenge me um, in an appropriate sense. But when I provide them about 30 to 60 seconds worth of information that I think is very relatable, they're in agreement. Uh, so I think the concept is very foreign, and that's why I think the advocacy for many different routes that you and I and, and many like us participate in is is so necessary. But whatever it ultimately is in terms of like the actual policy, you know, under whatever umbrella, if it's yep. Medicare for all or what have you, there there's this kind of problem of 
aversion to change. It's kind of fascinating and, and frustrating, certainly. No matter how bad things are, people still are a little bit more the devil you know versus the one you don't. And then that's where you know the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance yep. companies – they can easily go in and scare the hell out of people on this stuff. So, like, is is that is that part of the barrier that there's just this um, fear of the unknown, um, and and certainly the campaigns against it are are winning or working. Yeah, you're completely correct. And sometimes I think many Americans don't know that those campaigns are happening. Again, it's so ingrained in our culture and in our society. Uh, because we don't have a national health insurance or Medicare for all, that they don't realize that the pharmaceutical companies or the private insurance companies are um, lobbying very out in the open against these things. One quick anecdote I would share with the listening audience is I was living in Lexington, Kentucky, when the Affordable Care Act went into effect. And so I watched in the Lexington Herald-Leader many pieces written about how fearful people were about the Affordable Care Act coming into place. And over the course of six months after it was put into place, and many people who had never been eligible for health insurance before were writing in, or even the journalists were writing articles saying, wow, this this might actually be a benefit to people. So over six months, the tenor changed, and certainly there are weaknesses that we could talk ad nauseum about with the Affordable Care Act, but I point that out simply because people's perspective can change when they're presented with information that's to their benefit versus information that's presented to their detriment without them knowing it. Yeah. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we lift up healthcare journalists on this show, mm -hmm. I mean, we need clarity. And of course we have the, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Kimmel or one of those Jimmys <laughs> right. doing the whole, you know, um, what do you think of the Affordable Care Act? That sounds wonderful. What do you think of Obamacare? Sure. That, that's scary. No, absolutely not. And it's the same damn thing. Yep. So, you know, clearly the messaging is important here. Yep. Yeah. There's many different messages to potentially get the same outcome. And I think the outcome, from my perspective as a practicing physician, as an American who's gone without health insurance, as someone who has had private insurance through my employer, right? I've had multiple different scenarios in my adult life. I think the opportunity for every American, every individual living in this country to have a backbone, a national health insurance, where they know they can go and receive care when they need it without fear of uh, the cost People sometimes will make life and death decisions. I've had patients tell me that without the fear of cost playing a role is the greatest societal good we could be advocating for. So the message can be different. And I'm involved just like you are in many different avenues here with different messages around the same concept. So I think that's necessary, even though I wish we all had one voice with multiple voices, multiple different organizations, we actually might be able to push um, this into reality. So just one more of these kind of pushing to uh, understand more kind of questions. One of my pet peeves is when people, and I'll include Senator Bernie Sanders in this category, kind of oversell Medicare for all or, or, or single payer or whatever um, as simple 
you know, people, including myself, laughed when Donald Trump said, who knew healthcare was so complicated, you know, for obvious reasons, but we laughed because we already knew it was complicated, right? We know the politics, those who study, you know, the last 50 or even longer years know that like what the Affordable Care Act accomplished was highly improbable, even in its compromised sort of form. We mentioned USA Healthcare, um, the organization you were a founding member of and work with. Your slogan on the website is universal, simple, and affordable. Yep. And, and, and I'm all for simplifying our disastrously complicated approach in the U.S., but the path dependencies, as we call them, we have in place, you know, the history, uh, employer health insurance, the founding of Medicare and Medicaid, the power of insurance companies in the pharmaceutical industry, which Senator Sanders has said, said you know, we'll just buy them off at some point or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's made some comments uh, like that. The policy in the political terrain is not simple. Yep. Right. And 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 I just I want to ask you to talk a little bit about I mean, how do you process this kind of like the complicated versus simple sort of discussion here? That's a great question. Um, slogans are effective because they can um, catch people's imagination, give them the willingness to look into a topic a little bit more. The simple to me, and I think my colleagues within USA Healthcare, which are not just physicians, lawyers, other advocates, students, residents. We've had a whole host of very effective advocates participate with us over time. Simple to me means making it efficient so that when you know that you need care, you can go and receive it. When the clinician who provides you the care or the health organization, they're able to get compensation for that care. We live in a very technologically advanced society and culture in the United States. The delivery of healthcare from the clinician to the patient is sometimes very complex. So I'm not talking about that simplicity. I'm talking about someone being able to go and get care when and how they need it. And in the reverse fashion that that clinician or health system gets compensated very simply, very efficiently, very effectively using a technology that has been in existence for 40 plus years. So there's a lot to unpack in simple. And I agree, it can be convoluted despite the word itself being simple. Yeah, certainly the experience of a patient. And I think that's one of the maybe the distinctions here. The patient experience should be much simpler, right? You shouldn't have to deal with tons of paperwork and processing and all that stuff. Also, the internal office life should be simpler. Yep. And the healthcare professionals' experience, whether you know physicians, nurses, whatever, should also be simpler. So, but the politics and the sort of like prospects of Medicare for all. This is the part where I don't want to say it's not worth pursuing. But part of me looks at the thickness of American politics and looks at the complexity of the psychology in place and honestly feels like there's just no hope. We got to go a different route. We, we, we need some other low-hanging fruit or we need to work within the constraints that we've been given. Like, it, to my mind, that would be simpler. Yeah, and I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think if someone were to try to pigeonhole me, Ian Bett, in 2023 into the plan that's going to work, I would actually try to escape that pigeonhole very quickly because I think we need to be taking a multi-pronged approach. What do I mean by that? I mean, potentially a state 
single pair system to demonstrate the efficacy, the simplicity, the and then have other states decide, wow, actually this is very effective. Uh, we can make a profit off of this that can be reinvested into our citizens. Or you could say with one fell swoop of legislation, which is what's being advocated for, that we would completely transform our healthcare system. I, for one, don't think that that is possible for the reasons that you've just elucidated. The You have to know your enemy, and even if they're well-intentioned, the pharmaceutical companies, the private insurers, the legislators. Medicaid is entirely run through for-profit managerial yeah, companies in Ohio. Yeah, and that's maybe something that people, I, I don't think many people realize that. You know, whether they're practicing clinicians or patients, they they hear the care source, the Buckeye, and they just, that's what I have. They don't know that that's a private company running the Medicaid. I I think there's a multi-prong approach that's necessary. The groups that I'm a part of outside of USA Healthcare, the Single Payer Action Network here in Ohio, even within the American Academy of Family Physicians, we have a single payer member interest group that's quite diverse uh, geographically across the country. Actually, has some some divergent perspectives on how we get to a national health insurance. I think that's really necessary. Uh, we have to have some difference of opinion and how we get to a place that that we can all agree with is uh, societally transformative if we can get to this point. And I think we can. Um, I wish we were already there. You know, when I first got to Ohio in 2010, uh, you know, I, I immediately sought out the folks with the Single Payer Action Network, and um, we've talked with them on the show, and I've been involved, uh, you know, with with some of what they've done. I mean, if you think national politics are depressing, <laughs> look at Ohio. And, yeah. and, and part of me, I want to extend the same sort of thing, which is like, who are we fooling thinking we can do anything in Ohio when you look at the way things are going with reproductive health, environmental health? I mean, Everything is going the wrong way. Yep. And yet you have, and again, I'm glad we have these believers who won't give up and they still show up with their signs and they're still writing their letters and all of that. But Ohio as a sort of test case for this, especially given the power of the healthcare industry in this state, which I think it's actually almost uniquely powerful for a state the size of Ohio. What's the efficacy of looking at Ohio or what kind of things can we do to start to move the conversation forward given just kind of the where we are politically i appreciate that question on many different levels actually i i'm in my second go around of living in ohio i did my undergraduate and graduate work here moved away and i came back to complete my medical training and and start practicing um almost 10 years ago one of the things i think birthed usa healthcare was a desire to change the conversation a little bit, particularly because in Ohio we have, I'm going to use the term antiquated beliefs around the practice of medicine, the legislation of medicine, and, and that's what myself and others like yourself are working towards. And sometimes when you're in that type of fight is actually where you can get a lot of footing pretty quickly. So with USA Healthcare, taking the perspective of knowing that we're in a state that is unfortunately so polarized, not just politically, I think politics is important to keep in mind, but socially, right? In terms of what people's rights are, who they are as individuals, and 
our perspective in this group has been to ask individuals who would consider themselves to be uh, conservatives or right-leaning or vote Republican, what do you think about these concepts of everyone having universal healthcare or making healthcare more simple or should it be affordable? And overwhelmingly, uh, when we've done these polls, it's been supported substantially. So 70% plus believe in universality, 90% plus believe in simplicity and affordability. So in a state like Ohio, if we can demonstrate that, I, I think that's some of the education necessary to show people we can, we can disagree on all sorts of other stuff. That's fine. I think that's life. Yeah. But on this really crucial topic, you're not alone in feeling that everyone should have access to healthcare when they need it without going broke. Even if you have some difference of opinion politically. But this is where in the, in the context of Ohio, you need to mention the kind of state of democracy, right? You know, sure. 70% of Ohioans supported the basic Roe versus Wade framework. Yes. You know, I, and, and it doesn't matter because we have a gerrymandered state legislature that's unresponsive democratically. So like when you look at the, the, the support for a lot of these things, you come up against that same wall, which is why we've tried to emphasize on this show, and you know, many people are doing this work around the state, that we need to fix the state of democracy mm. in Ohio before we're going to be able to do anything meaningful with our healthcare system. Yeah, I wish everything that you had just said was inaccurate, but it is fully accurate. It's really concerning as a citizen, right, no matter what side of the aisle, so to speak, that you'd consider yourself to be on, that we don't have a representative democracy in this state. I don't think anyone could say that there is at this point. Yeah, sorry to be the downer here. No, it's good. Return. <laughs> no, it's good. I And I think this is sometimes, from a national perspective, this is why I appreciate you bringing it up, from a national perspective, for those who've been advocating for Medicare for All, for decades, an unwillingness to accept some of these truths is what has put us in this perspective. And that may get me a lot of guff from my friends and colleagues, but I'll share a quick anecdote again on a call that I was on a couple of weeks ago where um, one of my friends and colleagues who's on a board position in one of these national organizations said, I, I feel like I can't stand by and watch someone dig our grave in regards to Medicare for all. And I said, we're standing in the grave already. The, the hole's been dug, my friend. We are now working to get out of the grave. When you have something like Medicare Advantage, which when that went live, we were like, is this really what's going to happen? And now it's captured more than 50% of the Medicare payments have, are now under privatization. So this is not a, they're digging the grave. It's we're standing in it and now we need to face reality and take different approaches uh, from as many different angles as possible. It'd be really helpful, really nice if the physicians groups would exert their power in support of these kinds of things, um, you know, we the Columbus Medical Association is a wonderful group that, mm -hmm. that has it right here. You look at the AMA, the AOA, the OOA, like the local groups. I mean, their political action committees are not yet exerting their power in a way that is going to actually, uh, you know, help with these kinds of things. Although there's a little bit of a turn. I think the AMA has improved a lot over the last bunch of years. And hopefully we can convince more physicians to advocate for patients and populations instead of worrying about what it means for them. 
Yeah. And again, I appreciate you highlighting these things so that I don't have to be the one to say them first and draw the ire of some of my colleagues. But I agree. I have these conversations with practicing physicians, whether it was at the recent Ohio State Medical Association, um, whether it's been with people that I trust with my education or people that I would trust to take care of family members or that have helped train me using derogatory terms towards me when I talk about the fact that we need a national health insurance. And, and I, it doesn't come from a place of, uh, from their perspective, I don't think it comes from a place of um, vitriol towards other human beings. I think it comes from a place of ignorance and not understanding that there's a huge economic benefit to all citizens having a national health insurance, for physicians not having to be in a place where they are so focused financially on doing things for patients that drive more income, but instead can say, say this person needs this type of care and um, I'm going to get reimbursed for it. And that's good. And I will have a good living and I'll have a good life. I'll contribute to my community. Uh, but I'm not beholden to a new medication, a new procedure, or who is reimbursing me at the best rate to determine should this person in front of me uh, get medical care. Just one more question on the, the single payer piece specifically. You know, there's so much that's attractive about single payer, you know, especially given the, the, the lingering millions of un- and underinsured Americans and things like that. And we know the horror stories, you know, surprise billing, um, you know, and some of these things we've made a little bit of progress. The Biden administration has done a couple things around yeah. the margins that we have to acknowledge. But, you know, here in Ohio uh, and nationally, I mean, you're a physician, you know that there's only so much clinical medicine can do. And this is another one of my sort of concerns about the Medicare for all discussion sometimes is that when I hear these groups having these conversations or these advocates around the, the country, I often don't hear enough social determinants conversation accompanying that when we know that housing, food insecurity, transportation, racism, I mean, these things are really the, the foundation and Medicare for all layered on top of that stuff without addressing all of that meaningfully isn't going to get us all that far. I mean, it will help and certainly it's just, and it's the right thing to do. But I wanted to ask you as a physician who does clinical medicine, but also cares about the bigger picture. How do we think about something like Medicare for all single payer national health insurance in relation to the social determinants piece that might actually be higher yield in some ways? Yeah, and I applaud uh, individuals like yourself, colleagues who are working in the social determinants of health space. It's a foreign concept in most of the industrialized countries that I've visited or spoken to clinicians or uh, individual citizens about their experiences with healthcare, that social determinants of health are a real issue here in this country. The way that I would look at how Medicare for all or a national health insurance could improve social determinants of health is, I think the best example is what's happened here with Medicaid in Ohio. When the study was done, and, and I'm losing track of time, it might have been even five years ago now, but they looked at 
employment rates of individuals who were unemployed prior to getting on Medicaid, employment rates went up. People want to work. People want to be a part of the day-to-day existence. And when you're talking about um, improving our social determinants of health, I think the bedrock is our general health and wellness. And sometimes your general health and wellness is fantastic one day, and the next day it's wrecked because of a car accident or a severe diagnosis that you have to decide how am I going to proceed here with the rest of my life when I don't have the support structure to care for myself. So I think it's an integral part of actually getting rid of social determinants of health, right? The fact that we have where you live, how much money you make, uh, the color of your skin determines your life in this country. In 2023 is pretty unacceptable. And I think everyone having access to healthcare that's affordable and universal is the bedrock to, to removing these social determinants of health. It's not going to be the panacea, but it is definitely, I think, the biggest piece. And that's why I work so hard and enjoy having these conversations with like-minded individuals or even people who will try to uh, dissuade me from my perspective. Yeah, I, I guess that would be my one piece on this is just to say, you know, to those doing this work, I would be more persuaded by Medicare for All discussions and the kind of movement if I saw it being undertaken with the social determinants also right there alongside to really think about not health care. Because, you know, my first lecture I get to give to medical students every year is kind of about the insufficiency of what they're about to do, you know, and also having reasonable expectations. You know, a great physician can change lives. I have no doubt about that. But a great physician is not going to change population health outcomes and reduce health disparities. Right. So like, you know, I, I just I what's what's important to me is is that people don't put too much weight or, you know, undue weight in what can be accomplished through national health insurance when really health inequities and disparities uh, precede all of that and are kind of the, the foundation of that. Yeah, and I, I'd be really interested, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you say that, you know, it's hard to predict the future, well, maybe impossible to predict the future, but in a culture where people, I guess this is what I said before, people have access to healthcare when they need it, how they need it affordably, if some of these social determinants would simply cease to exist. Now, the reason I say that is I agree with you. They need to be hand in hand so that we can uh, advocate effectively, not only as medical professionals, but as citizens to say, hold on here. We've got all these problems in our society. This has to be something that's included in the discussion. Um, to alleviate some of them. I, I hope that I've made some sense with what I just said. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So just two quick things I want to, I want to get into, uh, you know, that are not specifically in the same area of Medicare for all national health insurance and all of that. Sure. Let's assume that my hopeless, uh, cynical vision is the right one. Right. And that, you know, nothing's going to happen on the bigger level for mm-hmm. quite some time. What are some things, you know, some high yield policy changes um, in healthcare and public health, um, however you want to frame it, 
that you'd like to see in Ohio that you think would just kind of like take the boot off people's neck a little bit, you know, would just make things just a little bit easier, whether on the patient side, on the workforce side, what's some low hanging fruit that we should just be going after right now? Keeping in mind that even low hanging fruit seems to be a heavy lift for our um, incompetent state legislature. Yeah. So are you looking more from a legislative perspective or from a citizen perspective? Because I, I think as citizens, we need to be aware of what's going on that's preventing us from having a, a national health insurance or something synonymous to Medicare for all, like many of the other industrialized countries do. And sometimes we actually need to take things into our own hands. So are you asking from a legislative perspective, which we seem to be gridlocked and fighting on basic human decency and civil liberties, or from a citizen's or physician's perspective? It's a fair point. Okay, let's throw the legislature out here and just <laughs> declare it yeah. incapable of, of helping uh, for just a moment, even though you know, we've made a little bit of progress here and there on a couple of things. I don't want to totally you know, <laughs> uh, dis- discard that that avenue, but what are some things uh, from the citizen perspective? And I'll also just mention, I mean, one of the things in Ohio that's so impressive that I did not have an appreciation for before I came here is the role of faith communities and Mm. sort of like the work that's being done in communities to make up for uh, the dereliction of duty that we get at the higher level. Yeah. And I think the reason I wanted some clarity in your question is uh, I need clarity for myself as a person and as a citizen and as a physician, there are things we can do rather than waiting on a federal government or a state government to give us the rights that we uh, have earned by birth and being in existence. So, and that's a concept that I'm really trying to wrap my mind around, which is why I wanted um to think about this and why the the group again USA Healthcare we've taken the perspective of social change is upstream from political change so individuals need to be participating and hopefully with enough of us participating the people we've elected into positions where they vote on things will recognize that the people who've put me in this position want this We've analyzed it, and it can be done. So one thing that's happening within the physician community, not something that I'm participating in, but something I'm aware of is something called direct primary care. So this is a a way in which an individual can go around the health insurance monolith and say, I like my physician. Your physician says, I like you. And rather than using a third-party insurer, uh, you can be provided services uh, at the point of care, uh, either through a one-time fee or a monthly subscription or a yearly pr- subscription. So I would just encourage people, if they don't feel like their health insurance is providing them the financial security that they need, then that is something that they can look into. Are there physicians in their community providing direct primary care? Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, physicians should also investigate other models of receiving uh, reimbursement other than through third-party billers. So whether that's being a direct primary care physician, there are some other innovative ways that go around private insurers or the public insurers that aren't insurance, and we don't need to dive into those too much today. 
but they are gaining some steam in our society. We are innovators, I think, at our core, individuals trying to solve problems day to day in our individual life or our family life. And I would just encourage people to not accept the status quo. Yeah. Something I did not expect today to hear uh, you uh, championing direct primary care, in, in part because, you know, my students are very interested in this, and many of them are. There tends to be an alignment there with some of these pro-market kind of like libertarian folks, actually. It doesn't tend to align with kind of the lefty progressive view that you mostly see around Medicare for all. But as I hear you talking about it, you're just trying to give people options to make it through this time that is serving them so poorly. Yeah. And again, I try not to be hypercritical. I'm in my early 40s. The time in which I really got energized in this space was 20 years ago when I had to go without insurance for a few months with a chronic medical condition. And to see that 20 years has passed with very little substantive improvement uh, lets me know that we need to I may not have the best answer. Someone else may have a better answer that comes to fruition. I'm okay with that because we live in a society, in a country, where so many people avoid medical care for fear of cost, fear of bankruptcy, and I can't see myself being someone who's tied the future of individuals I've never met to an ideology that might be wrong. And I have seen, unfortunately, many of my colleagues who have been in this space for 30, 40 years, hey, um, we might need a different perspective if we're sitting here and you were working on this 40 years ago. So that, that's where I'm, I'm open to other opportunities that I may have been blinded to in the past or not uh, recognized as being necessary for my neighbor or the person living in a different part of the country. Well, they call necessity the mother of invention for yes. a reason. Yes. Last question. We're going a little long today, but I knew we were going to because these are juicy <laughs> topics and that's okay. Um, and I like to talk a lot. My students and residents will point that out gingerly uh, when the time comes. Well, they have no hope with the two of us. <laughs> Uh, but you know, look, we're we're uh, you know in the end of an academic year here. Uh, we have medical students, other health professional students graduating around the state, trying to figure out what next. Looking at their career, twenty, thirty years, hopefully forty. You know, uh, and um, this it's a hard time. Most of these students came up straight up within the pandemic too. Yep. So there's yes. there's a special sort of edge to it. As a physician who's involved in policy advocacy, um, I'd ask you to give listeners a snapshot of what drives you to go beyond the clinical work you do um, and get involved in policy advocacy. And what do you say to this next generation of health professionals who are entering into practice, but frankly, are already filled with an understanding of how screwed up things are? And um, maybe looking for uh, some kind of guidance in terms of how they should calibrate themselves to that. Yeah, it's a, a great question. And sitting here, it's not hard for me to reflect back on 20 years ago and making a decision in my adult life. Do I go without insurance and pay for the medication I need out of pocket, which was less expensive than the monthly COBRA coverage? 
and finding my friends, colleagues, students, residents in a similar boat 20 years later, that gives me all the motivation I need uh, to come on here to give presentations in front of people that I've never met when I'm nervous about what someone might ask about. Will I have the answer? And so that that's what gets me motivated is knowing that there are individuals like yourself uh, and others who are working in this realm um, advocating for me 20 years ago. Right? And so I'm advocating for those individuals who find themselves in similar situations. What I would say to my colleagues in all the allied health professions is I think it is necessary to be an advocate for our culture and for our society. That means connecting with individuals like yourself or myself or people that are newer to the argument and getting as much information as possible. I've learned more from patients that I can use in how I think about advocating uh, for the betterment of medical practice than I have from friends, colleagues, papers, texts. So talk to your patients, talk to your family members, and be okay with changing your position when you get more information. That is a sign of intelligence. And so while I would like to be right on this topic, I'd like to be the one who gets us over the line. If someone else has an idea that I can analyze and say, that's a better idea. It's okay to mature in your perspective and start advocating in a, in a different way. And I, I think I've matured in my perspective over time by having interactions with individuals like yourself, other mentors in this space, having disagreements, as I alluded to, with other people who've been in this space for decades wholeheartedly with a same mission in mind and saying, but this isn't working, what do we need to change? I think that is integral to the future practice of medicine. So I'd encourage all allied health professionals to have those discussions with themselves and with their friends and colleagues and patients. Awesome. Well, I, I just want to say, I mean, Ohio is lucky to have you, um, Thank you. here doing this work and uh, we, we need all hands on deck. Yep. Um, and, you know, look, you know, I like these conversations. I miss the old conversations where I would talk with people over, you know, a cup of coffee or a glass of wine for hours when yeah. I was younger, you know, about libertarianism, anarchism, Marxism, whatever. Like, let's yeah. let's get the ideas out there. And um, these are the kinds of conversations I hope to be doing uh, more of on this show. Yeah, and I appreciate you putting in the time and effort to have this type of dialogue with individuals in this state to for you doing the teaching that you're doing with uh, people who are going to be caring not only for the future citizens' medical care, but there's a real upswell of physicians who are getting into leadership positions. And I, I draw a difference between leadership positions and uh, political positions, but they can overlap significantly. So we're fortunate to have some of those individuals in this state. And that's what keeps me uh, interested and engaged and willing to have these conversations anytime, uh, anywhere. So thank you. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. 
I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss our next episode in which I talk with Daniel Bissett of the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network and Morgan Mitchell of the Abortion Fund of Ohio about the wave of abortion restrictions in Ohio and around the country, especially those targeting medication abortion. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve the show. Thanks for listening and be well.